Rochelle Young. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And I'm Sam Tracy. And thanks for tuning in to season four of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project produced by alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an international student-led organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We envision a world in which our laws and attitudes surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this week's show. As always, we'll start with weekly news, headlines, and forecasts with Sam and Rochelle. After that is an SSDP peer education segment about ketamine. And finally, our roundtable discussion with Nick Sattel of MI Legalize 2018. Thanks for being here, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Sam and I bring you the biggest news and headlines from around the world in drugs and drug policy, and then give you a forecast of fun events and deadlines uh, to look forward to coming in the weeks ahead. So Sam, do you want to take it away with our first story this week? Sure thing, Rochelle. Uh, So unfortunately, as a heads up, uh, all of my stories this week are bad ones. Um, Both of my big news stories and my headlines are all kind of different types of bad news, but the things are... all ones that I think are worth talking about, but just a warning to you and our listeners. Um, oh no, mine! I just looked in mine are too. Oh, all right. So this is uh, episode ninety-seven. Just a whole lot of bad news here, but all important <laughs> stuff. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so my first story this week um, is one from the Washington Post, uh, which described a pretty terrifying situation last week, where an Ohio police officer accidentally overdosed after what started off as a routine traffic stop. Uh, So he had pulled someone over and found that there appeared to be white powder uh, on the driver and inside the vehicle, um, which turned out to be fentanyl. So they took the driver out of the vehicle. Um, All of the details here weren't exactly clear, but it sounds like he either admitted to it. They knew that it was drugs. Um, And during the stop, the driver said he was starting to feel sick. Uh, So they called in an ambulance to get medical attention. And while he was there pulled over on the side of the road, um, it turned out he was overdosing from getting fentanyl uh, on his body so having it touch his skin while there um and while all of this was happening So the officer who made that initial stop, he started feeling unwell, too. Um, And in the article, he kind of describes his experience that everything was kind of slowing down and and that he uh, um, could hear people talking, but really wasn't able to form sentences or anything. So he knew something was happening. Um, He hadn't been, you know, on this strong of opiates before, but he, he knew that was probably what was going on. And so he drops to the ground. Luckily, the medics, since they're already there, uh, were able to respond literally immediately um, and administered Narcan to him to stop the overdose. They actually had to use three or four of them. Um, both the driver and the police officer survived, uh, but both needed a lot of medical treatment. Uh, so... While this story, you know, I'm sure is getting shared around a lot by uh, anti-drug folks and people who are trying to ramp up the war on drugs because it is really scary. Um, I I do think it's really important to talk about from our perspective, um, both how dangerous fentanyl can be um, and how we should, you know, actually be be addressing this program, uh, this problem instead of uh, just ramping up our, our drug war. 
Um, so the first thing I thought when um, you told me about this story was this actually reminds me of another story. I don't know if we did something similar where a like a, in an earlier season where mm. another cop accidentally overdosed or touched like the white powder and it got through his gloves or something like that. Mm. Um, and I couldn't remember if that's what had happened or if it was actually um, in an anti-drug ad, which I think is more now that I think about it, is what we were reporting on, mm, where mm-hmm. a cop tells that story kind of as a fear-mongering tactic. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, apparently this is something pretty common in the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that really sucks. I know a lot of people are police officers for good reasons and want to, like, help people, mm-hmm. but I almost, like, have no... I mean, that's one of the risks of the job. Yeah, because like, the article was talking about how they have all of these procedures in place that now they wear masks and rubber or, or latex gloves when uh, doing pat-downs and that sort of thing, um, specifically because of this. And, and in this case, it was actually the officer had some on his shirt um, and then brushed it off after doing the pat-down. And that mm-hmm. small amount is what uh, what allegedly did it. Um, so it is important to think about how dangerous these drugs can be. Um, but I think also is a really important reminder that, you know, fentanyl, it's 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Uh but really, this the the demand for for this has really been driven by prohibition, because uh, kind mm-hmm. of in the similar situation during alcohol prohibition, uh, beer consumption went down, liquor consumption went up because people were switching over to something that was easier to smuggle, easier to conceal, um, and I'm sure that that's one of the factors at play as right. to why so like this higher is being included. Products, in, mm-hmm. Higher potency products are um, incentivized in prohibition mm-hmm. markets, right? Because then you you don't have to carry as much to get this or use as much to get the same effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also that, you know, adulteration is really only a problem in unregulated markets because it's really easy to get away with it when whether it's, you know, uh, fentanyl and heroin nowadays or going back to the back in the day to all the, the drug stores where they'd sell opiates inside of uh, uh, a medication just saying like, oh, this is a cure all kind of thing. Just because it's unregulated, you could put whatever you want in there. Um, and so regulation is really the only way to uh, address adulteration in those kind of situations. Um, moving on to our next story now, and I, I think I, I guess I take back what I said earlier about all of my stories being bad or depressing. Mm. This is a pretty hopeful one um, <laughs> in response to a bad situation. Uh, um, mm. So a needle exchange, and it's also related to fentanyl, mm. which is not mm-hmm. surprising because it's the biggest health crisis or mm-hmm. public health crisis in our country right now. Yeah. So a needle exchange center in the Bronx, New York, called St. Anne's Corner, is conducting an experiment that it hopes will reduce the rate of opioid overdoses in its community. So the data manager there, Van Asher, has been handing out test strips to his clients to test for fentanyl. But this is different from the drug checking kits that we normally talk about, um, particularly in the context of like festivals and rave drugs. Mm-hmm. Um So instead of testing the actual drug supply, these test strips test the client's urine instead. Oh, interesting. Um, And I kind of thought about this, and I think it makes sense because regular drug checking kits um, are normally sold as multi-use kits. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the little container of chemical Mm -hmm. can be used up to 50 times. And while they have the advantage of testing drugs before they're consumed, so to 
prevent the user from actually mm -hmm. interacting with drugs they don't want to be using. Um, they are less convenient to carry around, so you wouldn't be able to give it away. Like each kit costs 20 bucks as well, so you wouldn't be able to just give them away to your clients mm -hmm. and they may not want to use it right there at the center. Yeah. Um, and in contrast, these um, test testing strips are just a dollar each mm -hmm. and they're like not complicated to use at all you just pee on it mm -hmm. and it tells you whether there's fentanyl in your own in your own body yeah. or not that's so interesting too because i mean uh -huh. most of the time you're thinking about wanting to make sure you're not consuming something that's adulterated but there's probably tons of people who are consuming something um and just totally unwittingly um so finding it out after the fact is kind of a scary idea, but, you know, assuming you're taking the test, uh, it means you seem to be in a okay position. And so that means you could maybe change some of your behavior um, or, or try to mitigate some of those harms if, if you find out that, oh, I actually have had fentanyl in my drugs before. I mean, what was really interesting about this story, too, was it kind of shifts the narrative mm -hmm. um, that we have been hearing about fentanyl, about how it's like inadvertently being cut into all of these drugs. I mean, many of the clients that they spoke to outside of St. Anne's Corner mm -hmm. were actually like either apathetic to whether fentanyl was in their supply or some mm -hmm. of them were like for it because it makes their drugs stronger, which is, yeah. you know, sometimes the point. Mm -hmm. um, one one user or one client that they spoke to, Vincente Estepa, um, actually had one of his bags of heroin tested and it came up positive for fentanyl. And when asked whether that would change the way he uses, he said no. At the end of the day, an addict is an addict. And if it makes me feel, it's stronger. If it makes me feel the euphoria, I'm going for it. Um, wow. So um, it does help. I mean, Asher is the, the data collection manager mm -hmm. um, at at his uh, needle exchange program. And so he is actually trying to collect um, some feedback and data from the clients that he gives these test strips out to. Oh, yeah. Um, to see, you know, how many of them are um, getting caught or, you know, having fentanyl mm -hmm. unwittingly supplied to them. Yeah. Um, he did say that it was a challenge uh, to get those surveys back from his clients, though. Like, sometimes they'll just... Mm -hmm. wander off and never return them mm -hmm. um yeah but if he did if he did get the survey reports that could help them identify trends in like which brands of street drugs also are more likely mm -hmm. to be cut or what a contaminated um supply might look like mm -hmm. that's really interesting because that does sound like i mean once they're able to do that data collection that there could be pretty huge public health impacts from that because, I mean, testing, um, for lack of a better term, kind of upstream uh, before consumption. I know that there's groups that do that kind of drug te testing in order to um, figure out for things like adulterated MDMA, for example, um, and where that is. But finding out which ones people are actually using uh, it sounds really important, too. So I wonder if this sort of model will end up getting expanded to MDMA or other sort of drug testing, too, to see if that's adulterated with other stuff. So just one last thing um, that's sort of a tangential note before we move on um, is that so in a similar survey, a nine month uh, study at Insight up in Vancouver, they found that 80 percent of the drugs tested contain fentanyl. So just for some perspective of how really pervasive fentanyl is oh, wow. in um, street drug supplies. Mm -hmm. 
And so for our third story this week, um, and my second uh, very negative one, um, this one is scary, but in a different way from the overdose story. Um, so our listeners are probably familiar with Dr. Carl Hart, uh, who is chair of the Department of Psychology at Columbia University and a big advocate for changing the way we think about drugs. Uh, in this past week, Dr. Hart appeared on the radio and television show Democracy Now!, uh, where he discussed a recent trip to a drug policy reform conference in the Philippines. And while in the country, he criticized President Rodrigo Duterte, saying there was no scientific basis for Duterte's constant claim that methamphetamine, uh, which they call shabu locally, uh, that it shrinks users' brains and causes them to commit violence. Uh, So after being asked about this by a reporter, President Duterte uh, actually attacked Dr. Hart personally, uh, referring to him as, quote, that black guy and doubling down on his baseless claims about this brain shrinking thing, which is just objectively not true. Uh, And after this, Dr. Hart was targeted in a pretty racist political cartoon in the Manila Times, uh, showing him talking about it and people who are supposed to be drug addicts in the back applauding him. And then he even began receiving death threats from anonymous, you know, fans of Duterte. And it made him cut his trip short and leave the country early. So this is just a really, I mean, it was a shocking story to me because we hear about the way that these sort of administrations operate um, and the way they shut down dissent and everything, but it's usually in a more abstract sort of way um, and happening happening internally. And it's kind of hard for, you know, an American to understand and just hearing about an American uh, leader in reform then going over there and this happening to him, you know, you can't even imagine what sort of thing happens to less uh, widely known people who speak out and don't have the same sort of uh, protection as he did. Mm-hmm. I think this is an important reminder too. Like we constantly talk about Duterte's extrajudicial killings on, you know, drug users or whatever it is that he's expanded it to now, mm-hmm. like as human rights violations. But again, you know, when we actually spoke to someone who has cultural connections to the Philippines, mm-hmm. um, Oliver Zaruto, who has been on a past episode, um, you know, it was very clear that. Duterte is strongly supported in his country Mm -hmm. and that his policies are very popular among the people who um, elected him. And that's very much um, not unlike the popular support for Trump here, even though it's going lower and lower every day. But there Mm -hmm. are hardcore Trump fans who will um, protect him even as he attacks, you know, Mm -hmm. well-researched or educated people. Yeah. And I mean, it is a very similar dynamic in terms of the way that the online world seems to operate now is that certain people, whether it's political campaigns or elected officials or whoever, a lot of them seem to have these kind of mobs of online trolls, whether they're paid or not, or if they're, uh, you know, doing this for fun or, or, maliciously um but they're you know will just pile on and attack people send them death threats on twitter this happens to you know feminists speaking in the united states all the time of getting disgusting threats of sexual assault and that sort of thing and just that it's really unfortunate and i wonder how much organizing behind the scenes there is um and and there really does seem to be a decent amount and especially since duterte you know is even scarier than trump because there he seems to have the support of the media and he's about twice as popular because trump is what 35 percent maybe but duterte is like 70 percent approval um and it is just a, a pretty shocking thing um yeah i i think it's it was definitely very courageous of 
uh, Dr. Hart to go mm-hmm. to the Philippines in the first place, you know, somewhere that he knew was going to be hostile to his reform policies. Um, and this is maybe, you know, I'm, I'm sure they had a contingency like security plan in case something like this happened. So I'm mm-hmm. glad we're all glad that he got out safe. Absolutely. So moving on to my our f- final news story of the week um, and uh, a less uh, a, a kind of more unexpected one. Mm. So a popular type of weight loss surgery called Ruin Y gastric bypass surgery has been linked to an increase in alcoholism amongst those who receive it. Mm. So a study published in the journal Surgery for Obesity and Related Diseases which surveyed more than 20,000 patients at 10 hospitals across the United States, found that more than 20% of patients, so that's one in five um, patients who had undergone Ruin-Y surgery, developed alcohol abuse-related problems over the next seven years. This is compared to about 11% of patients who developed alcohol-related problems for gastric binding, which is another popular type of weight loss surgery. Um, And for comparison um, to the national average population, the NIH estimates that 6.2% of adults in the United States currently have alcohol use disorder. So for the, um, yeah, so for the, um, less dramatic weight loss surgery, it's still twice as much, like we see twice as much alcoholism Mm -hmm. as the general public. And then like almost four times as much. Wow. For this really popular type of surgery. And so did the um, article talk about, do they know what the link is or, or how this is like working biologically? Because that does seem really interesting. I, I mean, and I didn't even know that, um, you know, gastric banding, for example, which I, I have heard of before and like have a basic idea of how it works. But it, I, I didn't even realize that that was affiliated with an increase in, in alcohol uh, abuse. And so... I wonder so how the that researchers, works. yeah. So the research, uh, re- the study researchers obviously were very careful about making any sort of causal claims mm-hmm. as opposed to like linking it, which is like mm-hmm. their code for correlated. Um, the article I read did say that because Ruin Y is associated with higher and quicker elevation of alcohol in the blood, maybe because of the way it affects digestion, mm. um, that could be one of the causes. But also that some animal. Animal research has suggested that ruin Y may affect areas of the brain associated with reward, possibly increasing alcohol reward sensitivity. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so, I, I mean, there's so many... <laughs> there's so many parts of this story that are difficult for me to, pardon the pun, digest. <laughs> um, and... Um, I do want to be really sensitive in reporting this story because I'm not personally someone who struggles with weight gain. And I know that there's like a tremendous amount of pressure in the United States and elsewhere mm-hmm. to like be thinner, regardless of whether that is actually good for your health. Yeah. Um, but it does make me wonder, like, what percentage of people who went into these surgeries already suffered from some sort of um, alcohol abuse Mm-hmm. before they even underwent the surgery or because, you know, like substance abuse is oftentimes associated with like low self-esteem. And if you have really bad self-perception to the point of going this undergoing this incredibly invasive surgery, maybe mm-hmm. you're not in the happiest mental place to begin with. Yeah. And it certainly could be that there are uh, is the potential that if there's a, a similar kind of base underlying issue that was causing you to binge on food, that if you're physically unable to do that anymore, because your stomach has been altered like physically, surgically, that 
you might just have to find some other way to kind of fill that gap. And, and so I, I could feel that there's definitely uh, the possibility of some psychological uh, reason for that, too. Right. Um, and one interesting quote that one of the, the study author um, said was, uh, what she what she said was, we knew there was an increase in the number of people experiencing problems with alcohol within the first two years of surgery, but we didn't expect the number of affected patients to continue to grow throughout seven years of follow up. So this really, you know, in a way makes me wonder why aren't why isn't it more alarming to us as a society that medical practice is like really well aware that mm-hmm. weight loss surgery is linked to alcoholism and completely willing to do it anyway. Yeah. That's just been judged to be an acceptable risk there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when, you know, substance abuse and alcoholism is such a dramatic, um, you know, cause of concern otherwise in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll definitely be uh, keeping in touch with that sort to see if they find anything a bit more causal, I guess. Uh, But moving into our quick hit headlines, um, both of mine, as I said, are negative, uh, unfortunately. Uh, But my first one is that Javier Valdez, a well-known Mexican journalist covering organized crime and the war on drugs, was killed in Sinaloa last week. Uh, He was shot dead in the street, uh, very obviously a victim of organized crime, and was the fifth reporter killed in the country since March. Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte is extending his war on drugs to now target cigarettes. This week, Duterte signed an executive order on a nationwide ban on public smoking. The ban takes effect in July, will affect both traditional cigarettes and e-cigarettes, and also includes potential jail time for anyone caught advertising and providing tobacco products to minors. According to the FBI, a restaurant owner in Detroit, Michigan, tried to bribe city officials in an attempt to secure a medical marijuana license and at one time handed an official an envelope with $15,000 in cash. The Alaska Police Standards Council issued a decision that prohibits law enforcement officials from participating in the state's legal marijuana industry. Under existing Alaska law, it is still illegal for police officers to use, possess, Uh, manufacture or transport marijuana. And moving into our weekly forecast, luckily my forecast is actually about something positive, so that's good at least. Um, And that's that this Friday, May 26th, is the deadline to apply for a scholarship to the Drug Policy Alliance's biennial reform conference. Uh, And that'll be taking place from October 11 to 14 in Atlanta, Georgia. It's one of the best drug policy conferences out there and is certainly the biggest, uh, but it does, you know, get expensive. So if you're a student, if you're low income, or, or if you'd otherwise have trouble getting to the conference, uh, apply for a scholarship and you might get a grant from DPA to attend. Uh, Many of us from TWID will likely be there, as will many of our regulars and our special guests. So if you can swing it, we'd really love to see you there. Again, the scholarship deadline is this Friday, May 26th, and we'll have a link to the application in our show notes. And today, Saturday, May 20th, the day that we're recording this week's episode, it's Harry Anslinger's birthday. <laughs> so on this day in 1892, Harry was born in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and went on to serve as the United States' first drug czar as commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And of course, he played a pivotal role in the prohibition of marijuana. Um, for those who don't know, because I actually didn't realize this, it was actually because of the end of alcohol pro- of alcohol prohibition, during which time Anslinger was uh, the head of the Prohibition Bureau, that Anslinger pivoted to then demonizing marijuana um, for job security reasons. 
Um, there is no more absurd fallacy than the idea that cannabis makes people violent, Anslinger has been quoted as saying, but he perpetuated that idea anyway, leading now to millions of people incarcerated and trillions of government dollars wasted in the decades since. So a big happy birthday and fuck you, Harry. Mm-hmm. Could not agree more. <laughs> And so that is all for episode 97's weekly news and forecast. As we say every week, there's so much going on that we really can't keep track of it all. So if you, our listeners, uh, see a story that you think is really interesting, if you've got a comment on something we've covered before, uh, or especially if you've got an event coming up or know about an important vote or something that's happening in the weeks ahead, we'd love to hear it. Uh, so you can just send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, and you can also email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. We don't have a paid sponsor this week, but if we did, this is where their commercial would be. Are you listening to this right now? Do you have a cool business, political campaign, website, pet cause, or literal pet that you want us to tell our hundreds of passionate listeners about? Then you're in luck. For a small fee to help cover our costs, you can get your very own 30-second ad that would go right here, be read by me, and be listened to by everyone who's hearing me say all of this right now. So if that sounds good to you, swing on over to thisweekindrugs.org and click on the sponsor button at the top to learn more. Now, back to the show. Hey everyone, it's your friendly podcast producer and occasional co-host, Tyler Williams. This segment will be taking place of our Drug of the Month and happening on alternating weeks between my This Week in Drugs history segment. For these bi-weekly peer education segments, we'll be utilizing the SSDP Just Say No peer education curriculum to deliver student-generated education to our listeners. SSDP's peer education program seeks to empower students to analyze the relationship between drug policy and drug use by providing evidence-based drug information, teaching students to recognize and address dangerous behaviors and unhealthy attitudes, and promoting pro-social and harm-reduction-oriented behaviors and attitudes. We'll be taking some of the resources created and offered by SSDP and turning them into short segments about each drug. These presentations are best used in interactive settings, so there are some limitations in this format. We're open to suggestions and changing it up. Please send us your feedback at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And of course, although we'll do our best to present you with the facts, keep in mind that there are a lot of unknowns, primarily due to prohibition getting in the way of research. And even with the research we do have, everyone has different experiences with drugs. This week, we'll be talking about ketamine. So a little bit about ketamine. Ketamine is a white, shiny, shardy crystal that is usually crushed into a fine powder before ingesting. Uh, It's a powerful dissociative that produces effects in small doses, and stronger, unintended effects sometimes occur from accidentally dosing too high or in too short a time frame. In most medical situations, ketamine is injected intravenously or intramuscularly in liquid form. Recreationally, ketamine is generally a crystalline solid that's insufflated. When it comes to doses of ketamine that are insufflated, a threshold dose is about 10 to 15 milligrams, a low dose is 15 to 30 milligrams. Common doses range from 30 to 75. Strong doses are 60 to 125 milligrams. And then usually most people who experience K-holes have done around 100 to 125 milligrams or more. Of course, the route of administration is different, and there are different doses for injection and, uh, and even oral ingestion, which is the least common method. So let's talk a little bit about the timeline of ketamine. 
When ketamine is insufflated through the nose, effects begin between 5 and 15 minutes. Peak effects plateau between 20 and 40 minutes, and generally wear off between 40 and 60 minutes. When injected intramuscularly, they begin within 1 to 5 minutes, plateau between 20 and 45 minutes, and then they gradually wear off between 20 and 60 minutes. Now that we've talked a little bit about dosing, let's talk about what the effective doses are versus the lethal dose. The effective dose is the amount of a substance that produces a beneficial effect in 50% of a group of animals, and the lethal dose is the one that produces mortality in 50% of a group of animals. When comparing the two, for example, think about cannabis, where you would need to take a thousand times the effective dose for the substance to become lethal. The fatal dose for ketamine taken orally is 38 times the effective dose, although it is important to keep in mind that the most common recreational method is intranasal or snorting. Moving into finer detail about the, the risks of ketamine, in a study that ranked harms on a scale from 0 to 3, 0 representing no risk and 3 representing extreme risk, ketamine scored 2.0 for physical harm, 1.54 for dependence, and 1.69 for social harm. Another important thing to keep in mind with ketamine is the dependence potential for ketamine. Problems of habituation and psychological dependence can occur for users with a steady or large supply, and to avoid this issue, it's recommended that users set a limit on use before they begin using ketamine. It serves as a benchmark for acceptable use before it becomes problematic, and having a trusted friend to confide in about your drug use can help you adhere to your limit. Frequent use has resulted in psychological dependence, paranoia, and even egocentrism in some users. In, in some examples, users started to believe that coincidences occurred because of them, or the belief that this happened and that happened, then it must be because of me. So, you know, a few risks there for dependency. Now, let's back up a little bit and talk about the history and origin of ketamine. What we've got here is a brief timeline. Uh, in 1962, American pharmacist Calvin Stevens first synthesizes ketamine in the search for PCP replacements. Three years later, in 1965, it's discovered to be a useful anesthetic. In the 1970s, both recreational and therapeutic use of ketamine spreads globally. In 1995, the DEA adds ketamine to its emerging drugs list. And in 1999, ketamine became federally illegal as Schedule 3 in the United States. There's not a lot of data around the prevalence of substance use among teens and adults in the United States. Generally, use has declined in recent years, so they stopped collecting significant data. What we do know is that out of 12th graders, 1.4% of them have used ketamine in the past years. So with all this information about, about ketamine, what it is, what its relative risks are, some of the history and origin. Let's talk about the effects of ketamine and why someone might use it and what happens when people use it, starting with the positive effects. The positive effects can be pleasant mental and or body high, an increase in energy, euphoria, a sense of calm and serenity, meaningful spiritual experiences, and enhanced sense of connection with the world, either beings or objects. Neutral effects are listed as distortion or loss of sensory perceptions, closed and open-eyed visuals, dissociation of mind from body, analgesia, numbness, ataxia, which is loss of motor coordination, a significant change in the perception of time, an increase in heart rate, slurred speech, confusion, disorientation, out-of-body experiences, shifts in perception of reality, 
and potentially K-holes, which are intense mind-body dissociations or out-of-body experiences with highly realistic visuals. There are some known therapeutic and medicinal effects. It's currently used as a veterinary and sometimes human anesthetic, and it's been said to relieve suicidal depression in a matter of hours. It works on many patients who haven't responded to uh, current antidepressants like Prozac, and while traditional antidepressants act on brain chemicals serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, ketamine acts on glutamate. There was a study done in 2006 that involved 17 patients with depression, and after a single dose of ketamine, 12 of the 17 felt much better within hours, and the effect lasted for more than a week. However, there can be alarming side effects such as out-of-body experiences, hallucinations, and memory problems with high or frequent doses. Ketamine is also known to have some positive impact on bipolar disorder. In a small study, 71% of participants responded to ketamine versus 6% who responded to placebo. And when someone is depressed, there's an abnormally high level of activity in the default mode network, the DMN in the brain. When someone is manic, there's an abnormally high activity in the sensor, sensory motor network, SMN, of the brain. And ketamine balances the signaling between the DMN and the SMM. And then finally, there is some documented research around chronic stress. Researchers at Yale believe that ketamine may be able to reverse some of the brain damage caused by chronic stress. So now that we've talked about the positive, neutral, and medicinal effects of ketamine, let's go into the equally as important negative effects. The negative effects of ketamine can be a risk of psychological dependency, nasal discomfort upon insufflation, discomfort, pain, or numbness at an injection site, severe confusion, disorganized thinking, paranoia and egocentrism, nausea, vomiting, frightening or untimely distortion or loss of sensory perception, susceptibility to accidents from uncoordination and change in perception, severe dissociation and depersonalization, a loss of consciousness which can be dangerous or fatal in the wrong circumstances, and a depression of heart rate and respiration. The risk increases with increased dose or when combined with depressants. And finally, something to keep in mind is emergency situations involving ketamine. A ketamine emergency might look like severe dissociation, a loss of coordination, and most importantly, depressed breathing and unconsciousness. And that's a point where, again, you shouldn't hesitate to call for help. Calling 911 in most states is protected, uh, even if you have drugs on you, or if you're calling for someone who is experiencing a drug-related emergency. Your state's laws will likely vary, but in most places, when you call in good faith, you are protected in some way or another. And even if you aren't, it's always better to figure that out later and play it better safe than sorry. Thanks for listening to the SSDP peer education segment here on This Week in Drugs, and now we'll get going with our roundtable discussion. time for our roundtable discussion, where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing the Michigan Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol with Nick Sattel, the campaign manager for MI Legalize 2018. Thanks for coming on. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. 
Awesome. So I know it's been a little bit of a process to kind of get to the point where you guys are right now, you know, the on Thursday, um, May 18th, for our listeners who may not know the date <laughs> that we're recording, um, the State Board of Canvassers approved language for a ballot initiative that you guys have been working on. Yeah, uh, that's a branch of the Bureau of Elections, which is another arm of the Secretary of State, and they essentially uh, approve petitions to uh, form, make sure that they they meet our qualifi- meet their qualifications, that the petitions are legible, and that the font fits their specs, uh, but they aren't necessarily in a position to disqualify it based on content alone. Um, We submitted the petitions in early May and uh, are really excited to have those printed and uh, hitting the ground with petitioners pretty soon. Awesome. And so like I was saying earlier, you know, it's been a little bit of a process to get here. Um, As some of our regular listeners, longtime listeners might remember, um, you had ran into some issues with, I think, the same kind of board of canvassers or other another government entity um, last year. We we did. We definitely came up against a number of obstacles, both placed in front of us by some state agencies um, and also the legislature. If It's interesting because we didn't necessarily have any citizens advocacy groups fighting against us, but the the work was all done in the legislature. We also tried to work with the Bureau of Elections and uh, encountered some kind of uh, zany antics from them. Uh, We were trying to work with them to clarify one of their policies, and at one of the meetings where uh, we were supposed to – they were supposed to vote on a on a proposed change. Norm Schinkel, one of the uh, one of the members of the board, there are four. He um, is one of two Republicans, and there's two Democrats. And one of the Republicans, Colleen Perro, couldn't be in attendance. And since there was still a quorum, um, and it could have voted two to one on this, he got up and left the meeting. Um, it was it was pretty bizarre and uh, pretty pretty childish, but uh, you know here we are we're going again and that was uh, just one example. Shortly after we turned in, actually the very day after we turned our petitions in, the governor uh, Rick Snyder signed a law into action that limited the very time frame that we were looking to uh, get clarification on. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Good to know. Um, So, you know, we mentioned before that we were discussing the Michigan Coalition to regulate marijuana like alcohol, Um, and I know you are associated with MI Legalize, um, but what other groups are part of this coalition? Absolutely. So the Michigan Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol is a broader coalition of a few different stakeholders and and civil rights groups. I guess some that were involved in the drafting include uh, Marijuana Policy Project and uh, Michigan Normal. Um, Also, uh, some some people from the uh, state ACLU. Uh, The Michigan uh, 
the marijuana law section of the Michigan Bar Association. Right. I think Michigan's only one of a few states that have have a bar association chapter mm-hmm. dedicated to marijuana law. That's very cool. Um, so I guess maybe let's dive into some of the more specifics of the proposal. Um, how many signatures do you guys have to gather for it to get on the ballot? We have to gather... 252,523 signatures, I believe. Uh, you know, might be off by one or two. But we have to get that in 180 days. Um, those all have to be valid. So, I mean, we're really looking at half a million signatures if we want to ensure success on this. Um, and that's essentially our goal. Okay. Um and so what would, so assuming you get all of your signatures, what would the, what does the proposal allow? So the proposal allows for uh, home cultivation. It allows for a regulated market. Um, it allows for some hemp cultivation. It preserves the medical marijuana program and uh, has a few other protections for medical marijuana patients. Uh, I, I really think that this law will employ a lot of the best practices that we've seen from other states, from the Michigan Medical Marijuana Act, um, and some of the you know positives from the subsequent amendments, although not all of them have been positive, um, and just some, some things that we really think are best for this state. Uh, it, it really could be one of the um, – one of the more uh, – I guess, open, perhaps more liberal models of regulation that uh, some other states have seen. There's some aspects of it are very tight, but at the same time, home cultivation allows an individual 21 years of age or older to to grow 12 plants, which I believe is more than any other state currently allows. Huh. Um, And so how is that the same as or more than the medical program? The medical program uh, was originally structured in such a way that if you are a medical marijuana patient, you can grow 12 plants and they have to be under lock and key. Um, Or you could uh, assign your right to grow those 12 plants to a caregiver and the caregiver has to be registered with the state and the caregiver can provide for up to five patients and also themselves if they are a patient. So if a caregiver uh, is providing medicine for five medical marijuana patients and also themselves, then uh, the max someone can grow right now is 72 plants. Although some recent amendments have uh, created some different licensing for uh, actual medical marijuana growing facilities, which didn't previously exist. There had been a lot of gray area. Interesting. Um... So it sounds like there is, you guys definitely took the took the medical the existing medical marijuana program the the good parts of it at least into consideration when drafting this initiative and drafting the language. Absolutely, and um, the board of MI Legalize was formed and uh, it was elected. Um, from a pool of some of Michigan's most dedicated activists, but we had a really 
a widespread of different voices at the table, including a former pediatric patient, the parent of a pediatric patient, uh, a, a caregiver. We had someone who uh, worked on hemp. We had several um, defense attorneys who had definitely seen from you know that end what the what the business end of the, the drug war really looks like, and. Um, so we, we definitely had people that had been involved since the inception of the medical marijuana law in 2006 and seven, and it was passed in 2008 and people that wanted to ensure we could improve on that and protect patients and protect access to patients. Um, and, you know, we also brought some others into the coalition to make sure that we had a, uh, enough a lot of you know as much resources and input and uh you know structure as we could pretty cool so we've talked about home grow but um what about possession so this allows for up to two and a half ounces of cannabis um on on your person and i think it's 15 grams of, of concentrate and that's you know while you're traveling um i believe at home you're allowed to have um I can I can't remember the exact number, but it's some amount of ounces plus, uh, you know, the fruits of your harvest. So, okay. you know, what you can grow, you can keep. Very cool. Um, and what about what would the legal age be? Twenty one and older. Okay. Um, uh, we we you know a lot of people on the board feel very strongly that it should be eighteen, or that you know some people may even believe there shouldn't be an age at all, but for all intents and purposes to get this passed with the, the general electorate and make sure that it is, I believe, in compliance with the, the Holder Memo, um, that we make sure that, you know, minor is defined as anyone under 21 in this case. Sure. And I mean, I guess, you know, the coalition is called the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol, and alcohol is also 21, so that Absolutely. makes sense. Um I guess one thing I'm curious about is how um, does it maybe are there any penalties for people who are under 21? Um, any do they make them more severe or is it would those kind of stay the same as they are right now? Uh, there, there are some um, kind of depends on how much you might have and if you're if you're cultivating, uh, but it, they sure. are mostly um, in most cases of simple possession, it would be a civil infraction. For someone under 21, okay. not a misdemeanor. Awesome. So one thing that I found really interesting, kind of while looking into this a little bit and reading some of the recent news articles about it, um, was the role that Michigan's legislature plays in the ballot initiative process. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, sure, I could. Uh, to you know, the I guess the simplest thing to say is that they don't play a role in the legislative process. Uh, but um, even though we have um, we understand that the right to petition and either enact a, a piece of legislation or enact a constitutional amendment or recall a, a politician, um, those are sort of becoming the average civilian's last chance at, you know, their, their last check against the government, um, where we have representatives who aren't necessarily representative of their constituents. And so they, um, 
I, I guess uh, something you may be asking about is once we submit our signatures, the legislature actually has an opportunity to either pass the language as is, um, or they could actually propose their own uh, sort of alternative, in which case it would be an alternative language that would go on the same ballot, and in in that instance, they then whichever ballot proposal gets the most um, the most votes wins. So in Michigan, if there are two petitions dealing with the same subject matter. Uh, if they both pass, it, it only matters which one gets the most. So if they both get f more than 50%, it's still the only one that would go into effect is whichever petition gets, or whichever ballot proposal gets the most votes. Interesting. Um, and so if, kind of backing up, if the legislature were to accept um, accept it and, and pass it, it would just there would be no need for people to vote on it. It would just automatically go into law as it's written. That would be the case. Uh, you know, that that would just, I would be jumping for joy. And, <laughs> you know, I would have to completely question my existence if the Michigan <laughs> legislature did that. But you can't give up on hope. Um, I'm not going to put too many eggs in that basket, but they could. And they could also potentially put forth a uh, an alternative presumably one that would be worse, but could be one that's better. Um, but we don't see that happening. I think it'd be very difficult for Michigan's um, entirely, you know, red house and Senate uh, to agree on some legalization, any legalization initiative. Sure. So, I mean, has, you know, you said they're entirely red, um, but have they, how has the legislature legislative attitudes um, towards the medical marijuana program been in recent years? Have they been taking, I mean, it sounds like they've been taking some steps to reform it, but have those steps been progressive or sort of more restrictive? Much more restrictive. And initially um, in the first legislative session after uh, legalization had really started being implemented, so it passed in 2008, started going into effect uh, sometime in spring maybe of 2009. Um, so in uh, a couple of years later, maybe there were there's a package of Walsh bills, and some of them were just uh, complete overarching violations of, of Fourth Amendment and other other civil rights. Not a lot of them passed. Some of them did, um, but some actually did make the program a little, you know, maybe more accessible. Um, one was that the um, the fee to register with the state as a medical marijuana patient dropped and the period of time for which you were registered doubled. Oh, wow. So I think it went from maybe $150 to $70 or $80 um, and was good. it's now good for two years. Um, but most recently... Uh, Shortly after we turned in our signatures, were denied by the state, and then filed a suit against the um, secretary, Michigan Secretary of State. Um, that got turned down in uh, the Michigan Supreme Court, and r shortly after that, uh, the Senate passed a few 
medical marijuana reforms that um, had passed out of the House, but no one was really expecting them to pass so quickly out of the Senate. And uh, they were pretty controversial, um, definitely not the most accessible, didn't have very low barriers of entry. Um, will haven't also hasn't gone into effect yet um, because Governor Snyder is supposed to appoint a board to uh, sort of dictate some of the specific rules and, and regulations for this new medical marijuana licensing, like facility licensing act. And um, he hasn't done that, even though he's passed his deadline. It's been over a month now. Wow. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, you know, we're hoping that changes. But that was actually, though those laws at one point looked a little bit better because there were two laws and one would make edibles and concentrates legal and another would make dispensaries legal. Both of them existed throughout Michigan, but uh, were very undefined or at least interpreted by the courts very narrowly in what their definitions were. So people... Part of this gray area. Yeah, very much part of the, the gray area and the red tape. So what they... We had some positive bills that were in the legislature in 2004, and um, if they had gotten on the Senate floor, they would have passed, uh, to our knowledge, uh, but they they were never brought up for a vote in lame duck. And so shortly thereafter, uh, a longtime activist, Chuck Ream and Tim Beck and Jeff Hank called a meeting um, with a lot of the, the best activists and some of the most accomplished activists in Michigan to decide what the next step would be. And we decided that we could no longer rely on the legislature to, to pass any positive medical marijuana reforms, so we should just take matters into our own hands and go for legalization. Awesome. Um, so one question that kind of came to mind while we were talking about that, um, you know, this November and leading up to November when we had so many states um, kind of doing the same thing that we're voting on legalization. I know that Maine specifically had some tensions between medical patients and people who are advocating for um, adult use or recreational or whatever your preferred term is. Um, and so I'm wondering, have you guys felt like there's a lot of support from patients and people who are involved with the medical marijuana program right now? There, There is a lot of support, and there's a lot of support for legalization that comes from, you know, some, some people of some mindset, but also uh, our organization came up against a lot, aside from just a dysfunctional legislature and, and uh, unwilling to participate state agencies. We... Uh, were actually one of three and almost four petitions on the field at one time. Wow. And uh, two of them were uh, very much a sort of, you know, a big money and a big government model. Uh, one was, the one that never actually came into fruition was essentially a Michigan extension of the Responsible Ohio campaign, which, if you'll remember, tried to legalize cannabis and restrict the production to 10 facilities. Um, and another one wouldn't do much in, in opening up civil liberties and access, but would instead just legalize it, but allow our majority red, uh, super majority red legislature to decide 
the who, what, where, and you know when of of the legalization initiative. Okay, um, you may have said this earlier, but as we're sort of beginning to wrap up, um, what is that? You know this this would be on the ballot in November of 2018. Um, and so what is the time frame for gathering signatures? So the time frame to get on the 2018 ballot, we have to turn in our signatures by July 1st, I believe, June or July 1st of 2018. Um, and technically when we turn in our signatures, the Secretary of State counts backwards. So we don't necessarily have a starting point and then we have a 180 day finish line. Um, but we also learned last year not to temper with that too much, and uh, for you know our our goal moving uh, moving forward is actually to get as much as we can in the next five or six months, so that we have the signatures we need uh, by some sometime in a, you know mid late November turn in. In Michigan, there's only mid late uh, November turning in the signatures. Yeah, because this we're year. this year of okay. this year. Gosh, Pardon me. Yep. That makes sense. And uh, then it's it's going to be a, a real media frenzy of getting out the vote and messaging and making sure that there's clarity about what our law does, making sure that voters understand. So, uh, you know, you mentioned Responsible Ohio, and again, our longtime listeners will definitely be familiar with that. We have talked about it quite a bit and dedicated a full roundtable to it. Um, and, you know, you're talking about the efforts to get out the vote, and I guess I'm one. You know, are, are you guys going to have a mask, a pot leaf mascot named Buddy that goes around to college campuses? <laughs> no, no. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think we'll have any mascot, pot leaf or not. Um, you know, we actually have a really volu- a really dedicated volunteer base that is also pretty sharp and. Uh, you know, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have gotten this far. So um, we will have professional petitioners out in the field, but we're also going to have a, a nice army of people who not only want to see legalization, but have worked toward legalization and sort of seen, uh, you know, gotten a crash course in, you know, Michigan civics from the, the ground level on up for the last two years. So... <laughs> We have people that, um, you know, actually, you know, carry themselves very well. And uh, we we really think that, you know, our, you know, the average advocate and, um, you know, the sort of our volunteer, they do a really great job of representing the campaign and, and the law that we're trying to pass. Um, and we'll also have, um, you know, a, a pretty, pretty guided media effort to ensure that, you know, that the, 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 the right messages um, get out about this. And, yeah, I'm, I'm actually, you know, excited to to get this on the ballot and then start that phase because last year was two years of uh, collecting signatures and hitting the pavement. And, you know, now we've, we've got six months to do this. We're going to do it right. And, um, yeah, there's nothing that's going to stop us, I don't think. Awesome. Well, we always wrap up our discussions with a call to action, since educating people is pretty useless if they're not also using that knowledge to improve their communities and make positive change. So if you could have listeners, whether they're in Michigan or not, uh, do something right now, what would you ask them to do? 
Well, right now I would ask them to uh, find us on Facebook and visit us at MILegalize.com. If you are in Michigan, uh, please click volunteer. If you're not, you can always click the donate button, and I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't uh, mm-hmm. mention that. Um, but another call to action is a little bit more broad, and that's just to, I, I probably don't need to tell the listeners of this show to register to vote, but also sign a petition, understand you know what the petition process is like at your local level and know who's uh, trying to pass what is always important. So, um, you know, get involved in your your own state or your city or your county if there are ballot initiatives circulating that you support. And if um, if if you're interested in uh, learning a little bit more about that, the best way to get involved or the best way to understand that process is to get involved. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today. Uh, This has been Nick Sattel with MI Legalize and the Michigan Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol. Thanks for listening to This Week Week in Drugs. If you enjoy what we do, please make sure to comment, rate, and subscribe so that more people can find us. You can also donate to help us keep our costs down at patreon.com slash thisweekindrugs. And you can find a link to that along with show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes at thisweekindrugs.org. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at thisweekindrugs. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And our outro song today is American Splendor by Jason Kaminsky. Just an hour I don't feel like I'm welcome Guess I'm in America now Yeah.
Just standing 